Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Here in New England, we have had what I call false summer for the past probably seven days or so, but um, and you can't tell from looking out the window behind me, that is definitely changing, and the reality is that it is absolutely fall. Thanksgiving is next week, uh, so there is really no avoiding it. Shout out to seniors, Thanksgiving week. I know you're looking forward to maybe kicking back, but if you have not finished your applications... You could forget about that. You really need to keep working on them. The literally worst thing you could do is have a list of additional applications that you're going to send in if you don't get into your early schools, whatever those are. Um, And there will be nothing worse than getting an answer in, say, mid-December and finding out that you were deferred or denied. And now you have to work on a bunch of applications at the very last minute. So Take your Thanksgiving week and set aside some time for that then. Um, We're answering your questions this week. That's what we're spending the second two segments on. But before we get to that, um, we're going to be looking at Notre Dame Supplement, which is reasonably involved. Um, And joining me for that is Kara Courtois, who is my colleague here at College Coach. She's also a former admissions officer at Barnard College. But probably most importantly for our conversation today, she is a Notre Dame grad. So hi, Kara. Hello. Nice to see you. You too. It's exciting to have you on the show. Um, All right. So Notre Dame has, there are a lot of options. Students actually have to write three 200-word essays. Mm -hmm. Um, One is required. Everyone's going to answer the same one. And then you have a choice of two of one, two, three, four, five additional options. Um, Before we dig into them, very quickly, I wanted to get your sense um, of it'd be helpful, I think, when you think about a place like Notre Dame mm-hmm. to think about what are the things that are important to them. Mm-hmm. And so maybe if you can give us a little bit of an overview, I think that would be a great place to start. Yeah, now I agree. It's, it's definitely a different place <laughs> in many ways. I mean, so many similarities with many of the highly spirited campuses, highly selective schools, you know, beautiful green campuses. But I think, um, one thing I would boil it down into was thinking of willingness, you know, that they're really looking for students who are willing to come to campus and maybe question, you know, life a little bit more deeply and willing to, you know, push themselves beyond maybe their comfort zone of what they've known before. And that can, you know, look different in so many ways, whether you look at it through kind of spirituality and, not necessarily religion, you know, though it's a Catholic school, they're really open to trying to encourage students just to be willing to question and explore and, you know, in academics, for sure, to, you know, push the boundaries of maybe what they've been comfortable with and maybe fall in love with a whole new topic as well. So I would summarize it in saying they're really looking for willingness from their students. Okay, that's good and important to keep in mind as we think about these other questions. Mm -hmm. 
All right, let's start with the one that everybody has to answer. And the question is, the founder of the Congregation of Holy Cross, Blessed Basil Moreau, wrote, or was it Basil? Did I pronounce that correctly? I don't know. Okay. (laughs) Basil Basil. We shall always place education side by side with instruction. The mind will not be cultivated at the expense of the heart. How do you hope a Notre Dame education and experience will transform your mind and heart? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think for most students, I would try to simplify that to say, why do you want to go to Notre Dame? You know, right. really, <laughs> that it's would really be the simpler way to look at it, you know, yes. overall. And I think with any of these kinds of supplements, really just a bullet point, what jumps out, you know, for you as the student is where I would start, um, which when it says transform, I think for some of the students, it's not necessarily total transformation. It's hopefully meeting you where you are. And, you know, hopefully the student can share some ways that their mind and heart has already, you know, sort of um, laid a foundation for their success at Notre Dame. But then also, you know, pointing to what speaks to them, you know, about Mm -hmm. that campus. Um, I will say from my own experience growing up, going to public school my whole life, that what actually really spoke to me is is the the religious nature. I didn't know that it was necessarily the Catholic nature, and um, it was really the religious foundation because I didn't know why I was Catholic. I didn't. I really wasn't like feeling grounded in that. I was just listening to my parents, <laughs> you know, yeah. at the time, and um, and it really. Uh, I came there looking for some understanding of that. So, you know, transformation maybe in that way. Um, But it's going to look different for every student. So I encourage them, you know, to think from their base of who they are to begin with and how they are looking for Notre Dame, hopefully to grow that or maybe help them see something differently. And I think as with any Why This College essay, you want to be specific. So you yes. mentioned bullet pointing out some key things. I don't think you suggesting that you include bullet points in your essay, but more that you do that research. Yeah. These are the things I want to make sure I include, right? Mm-hmm. And then including yeah. that in the narrative essay. Yeah. And I think part of that, I always love the about tab on a website mm-hmm. because it really, it usually either points you to the mission of that school in particular. And the mission at every school is slightly different. You know, and especially in this age where students aren't necessarily able to walk on campus, which I think is so crucial to really understanding Notre Dame. I was really thinking about my last visit to campus, which was my 25th reunion and um, and the layout of the campus. You know, everybody says, oh, it's stunning. It's beautiful. And I think now I'm really realizing that it's really set up to be contemplative, you know, to Mm -hmm. encourage students to walk across campus together and have conversations to like in the movie, Rudy, maybe go for a walk, you know, with, you know, a priest or a nun on campus and, you know, think about your faith while you walk around the lakes, but it's really, you know, set up um, in that way. So I feel badly for students who aren't able to see that, but that about tab, I think helps. And then kind of the master tabs that they have, that they have on the website really guide you to the faith and the spirit of the campus. Right, exactly. And um, no good why this college essay ever happened without you going and doing some research. So unless you took great notes as you were doing your research to decide on where to apply, um, you need to start there. Okay, Mm -hmm. let's go to the other 
options. So as I noted earlier, you have four, five options and you need to choose two. And as with the required one that everyone's going to write, each of these is going to be 200 words maximum. So you're going to write three 200 word, more or less, um, short answer essays. They're still essays. Let's start with option A. Uh, a Notre Dame education is not just for you, but also for those who will benefit from the impact you make. Who do you aspire to serve after you graduate? Mm-hmm. That is <laughs> that's such a big question. Yes. I would feel like some students really should skip right past that one. You know, quite honestly, the ones, you know, who really don't quite know an immediate response to that question. Um because I, uh, I mean, I just think you have to have a gut reaction to that. So just to say to many students who might be listening, that question may not be for everybody, you know, really. And that's okay. You know, there's plenty of other choices on there. Um, but they do have, I mean, when you look at the website, there's just so many options. And I will say a statistic from when I graduated was over 25% of our graduating class did service upon graduation. And that is, that number is only growing there. I don't I should have looked it up, but it's probably upwards of 40% now, to be honest, because their programs have expanded. So that's a big part of, you know, they're not necessarily saying, we're just going to send you out and expect you to get a job. And, you know, so there's freedom and you want to look at the website a little bit more, maybe to, to think about the fact that they're probably giving you some choices that could be really exciting. You know, the a program I did there was the Alliance for Catholic Education, um, which got me into teaching and got me, you know, to stick with education the rest of my career so far. So um, there are great opportunities beyond just what's in career development, I would say. Right, exactly. And I suppose that you could potentially talk about, um, I'm thinking about a student that I've worked with in the past who had, who has combined science with <laughs> service and whose goals are to use her science acumen to um, help make the world a better place, which sounds very grandiose and she mm-hmm. gets way more granular, which is what I would encourage you to do. And so exactly. I can see where she applying here, that that might be a good one for her. But I want to second what you said right up front, which is if you are thinking, I have no idea and I'm not going to, I'm going from Notre Dame to a job yeah. and then yeah. just skip right past that. Okay. Yeah. Option B. In response to the rising momentum behind the Black Lives Matter movement during June 2020, G. Marcus Cole, the Joseph A. Matson Dean of the Notre Dame Law School, penned an open letter entitled, I am George Floyd, except I can breathe and I can do something. He issues a call to the Notre Dame community saying, each of us must do what we can wherever we are. What is one action you are taking to, quote, to change this world for the better? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I do think there's a lot of students who have a great response to this, you know, based on what they've been able to do. I think some of those chances have been maybe curtailed because of COVID, you know, but certainly there's other students maybe that have pivoted and are doing even something differently than they expected, you know, that they didn't sit back and they're, they're digging in to make a change through oftentimes I'd say service, you know, might be one of those pieces for sure. Um, but to your point earlier, science research, you know, there are many students who've been able to continue, you know, their research projects. Um, I'd also encourage students to keep it pretty simple. And they're thinking that um, I know that 
I often say to students, do you help out in your family? Mm-hmm. And one of my current students, who's both his parents are doctors. And so um, he has been really monitoring the homework for his younger brother. And I said, you are making a difference, you know, in your immediate family, in your brother's life, you know, going forward. And, um, you know, there's so many situations like that, that I would encourage students to, you know, not necessarily have to think it's this grandiose, I started this nonprofit. Of course, there's plenty of room and wonderful students, you know, doing that, but they might want to keep it simple too. Are you helping your next door neighbor get their groceries, you know, during COVID or, you know, something pretty simple. Yeah. And I also think an important point, I noted that you didn't specify, and I think that's um, important, is it doesn't have to be related to Black Lives Matter. If you're over, if you're very involved in that, then mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah. And, you know, that's something you can talk about. But there are a lot of different ways to talk about how you're changing the world. And I think that's a really good point. Mm-hmm. Okay. Option C, God and the Good Life is an interdisciplinary course. I think I want to take that course. <laughs> Created by the Departments of Philosophy and Film, Television, and Theater that ask students to consider moral questions about what they believe and how they want to live their lives. What do God and a good life mean to you? Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and I would really encourage a student who, you know, maybe hasn't seen themselves as particularly religious or, you know, faith-based or um, digging into that just yet. To give, don't, you know, just don't jump over that question is what I would encourage because I think there's pressure so often in these supplements or admissions applications that, you know, what do the admissions counselor want to hear? And, you know, we always encourage students truly to be just genuine and there is no right or wrong. And so if you have a question, you know, if you see that question and you think, you know, I have no idea, (laughs) you know maybe start there, you know, don't, Mm -hmm. you know, discount the fact that they're not going to want to hear that, you know, um, they actually, you know, so often, um, you know, the willingness is to maybe take a risk in sharing who you're, you know, where you genuinely are in your junior, in your journey. And, um, we so often, you know, say to students as much as highly selective admissions is just really stressful and challenging and all of that actually want to, they, they all, know that you're 17, you know, typically maybe right. 16 even, yeah. and know that you're really just starting the journey and that, you know, again, what willingness are you bringing? And maybe you can articulate some of that of where you are in that, you know, answering that question. So I'm sure students will have, you know, even more pronounced experiences that they can speak directly to, and that's fine too. But I think for many students, I'd encourage you know, to pause on that question and not discount it because it has the word God, you know, right. in it or, you know, something that seems a little daunting. Right. I mean, I could see the the 17-year-old you saying, yeah. you know, this is maybe an opportunity for you to figure out why am I Catholic? I'm not really sure what the role God is going to play in my life yes. because I haven't decided right now. My parents have decided for me. So, yeah, cool. Yeah, well said. All right. Option D, Notre Dame has a rich history deeply rooted in tradition. Share how a favorite tradition from your life has impacted who you are today. I would probably go right to this. Totally. I think totally speaks to me. (laughs) Totally. I really think, you know, a good number of students are really going to go, you know, right there. Um, And I would encourage them, you know, to to think of the, the who you are today part, you know, making sure that 90% of that response is not just about that special, you know, holiday or Christmas or, you know, um, 
baking of the pies at Thanksgiving or whatever, you know, it is, which mm-hmm. is wonderful and, and beautiful, but that should be a backdrop, you know, and that it's very much focused on who you are today as a result of that tradition. So um, that can be a really fun show, don't tell, you know, type of response. Um, and I think we'll, I, I think Notre Dame would see a lot. <laughs> it yes. would agree. Yeah. And probably some of the best is my guess. Um, yeah, very genuine. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, final option. Uh, what brings you joy? Mm-hmm. Also kind of a nice one. It's such a beautiful one. And especially, I'd say, in our world right now, what, you know, a gift that some students who maybe aren't ready for some of those earlier, you know, more heady responses might be able to shine pretty brightly, you know, in there. Um and it's one, you know, one more example of a space where there is absolutely no predicted answer there. Right. And I would always, I would encourage for every one of these responses, as we do for so many of the supplements, do a brain dump, you know, jot down your initial thoughts and then walk away, you know, mm-hmm. maybe have it as a little, you know, conversation with someone who knows you well, be it a peer, a teacher, a family member, but walk away you know, and do what we were talking about before about the Notre Dame campus encourages contemplation. So think about it, wherever yep. your think space is, and try to come back to it. So in other words, don't do it the week before it's due. <laughs> you know, exactly. You know, so and then, you know, what brings you joy, you might be surprised, you know, by what it is right now, or, you know, things that you hadn't necessarily thought in the last six months, even. Yeah, absolutely. Kara, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate Thanks. it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Okay, we're going to take a short break. And when we get back, we're going to be answering your questions. So don't go away. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody, to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. We are, as we are wont to do, generally about once a month, we're answering your questions. And as is frequently the case, my colleague, Shannon Vasconcellos, who's a former financial aid officer at both Boston University and Tufts University, is joining me. Hi, Shannon. 
Hi, Beth. Thanks for being here, as always. All right, we're starting with one for me. Okay. Just feel like it today. Yeah, why not? Um, So Leslie asks, when will we know if University of California schools and California state universities will be test optional or even test blind for fall 2022 admission? So that's this year's juniors in high school, right? Yep. Um, So, yeah. Uh, we don't know. We have no idea. So there was a a lawsuit that was so California state system went test blind um, back much earlier this fall. University of California was test optional. And then there was a court ruling that said they had to be test blind this year because um, not everyone had an opportunity to test and therefore it was discriminatory to even consider test scores from anyone. Then they contested it in the courts, and so far they have had no luck. So they have uh-huh. thrown their hands in the air and said, we're not going to contest this anymore right now because we're about to start um, reading applications, and uh-huh. so we're test blind for the year. We have no idea what's going to happen in 2022. Right. We, what we do know is that at the very least they're going to be test optional because they had already made that decision before COVID ever hit. They had said they were going to be test optional, but we have no idea if the Cal State system is going to be um, test blind. We have no idea if the UC system will be test blind. Um, I am the mother of a junior. He is not applying to the University of California system. However, I am having him prep for and take the tests because what I don't want to have happen is I don't want him to be held back and not be able to apply somewhere because they are going to be requiring tests and he doesn't have them. So from my perspective, I'd like him to have all options open. And until I see more colleges coming out and saying, we're definitely going to be test optional next year, or even we're going to consider going test blind. I'm sort of proceeding as if he is going to be submitted (laughs) to at least some of the schools on his list. So um, Leslie, I know you're kind of wondering and hoping that maybe your daughter isn't going to have to test, but in this situation, I can't give you those assurances, and we don't know when the UC will make that call for 2022. But if I were a betting woman, I would say it won't be for a while. Um, Yeah, so. All right. Um, Shannon. This question comes to us from Ben. What is the best time to let a school know about a change in income due to COVID? Immediately, I would say. Um, so for those, for parents, um, Ben, I don't know if you're a student or a parent if you're of a high school senior uh, who is applying for college admission and applying for financial aid right now, I would let the school know right now, <laughs> if that's the case. It, right when you're submitting your financial aid application, I would let them know about a loss of income. Um, for folks who maybe haven't filled out financial aid applications yet, they might not realize that your financial aid application will ask you about your income from two years prior to the year you're applying for aid for. So for the school year that's starting in 2021, those students are applying to college right now and applying for financial aid. They're asking about 2019 income before COVID even hit in in the U.S. Um, So 
a lot of people have lost income um, since 2019. And those are circumstances you absolutely want to bring up to the financial aid office. Uh, ask them to take under consideration. They're not required to, but they can at their discretion. Um, so you absolutely want to ask the question. There are kind of two different points in times where you could bring up a loss in income. The one is, as I suggest, right initially when you're applying for financial aid, you're submitting your FAFSA form, maybe the CSS profile form, at right about the same time, send in an email explaining your loss of income, document it, the financial aid offices love documentation, facts, mm-hmm. figures, all of that good stuff. I would let them know right up front and you hope they take it into consideration up front. There is a possibility that they don't. There are some schools that really won't even look at special circumstances up front. They're just going to do a straight calculation based on the FAFSA. Uh, If that's the case, you can always let them know on the back end, once you receive your financial aid offer, if you don't like the looks of it, go back to them on the back end and say, hey, could you reconsider uh, based on this loss of income that I had? So those are the two points in time you could let them know. I would actually advocate letting them know up front. You hope they take it into account up front. Um, they may or may not. If you don't like the looks of the offer that they send you, don't hesitate to go back to them again on the back end and say, hey, remember me? Could you take a second look? Uh, I'd appreciate it because I had this loss of income. I say let them know up front because schools are hurting these days financially. They may run out of money. Um, so I don't know how generous they're going to be on the front end, on the back end, but I would let them know right up front and hope they take it into consideration. But if they don't, don't hesitate to go back again on the back end. Right. You shouldn't assume, well, I already gave them the additional information and clearly they didn't care. You can always call. They will not rescind the money they've already provided or your child's offer of admission. Never, ever hurts to ask. I would absolutely do that. All right. All right. So we have a question for you, Beth, from Laura. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, a couple questions. So she says, first, when will colleges have more data about enrollment for this year's freshman class? When will they post deferrals, average ACT scores, et cetera? Um, and then do you want to take that first? Yeah, let me take that yeah. one. So I'm not exactly sure when this one came in. So Laura, I suspect you may have been referring to the class that is currently enrolled as freshmen in college. Um, Not all colleges are going to list that data on their websites. Um, The UC system does provide the data on each of the, um, the schools. And I can tell you that for deferrals, I don't think you're going to find most schools providing that data. Um, Mm -hmm. The UCs in particular, in general, I don't know what the policy is at each school. I know that Berkeley rarely grants deferrals. I know that UCLA does not grant deferrals. Um, and I suspect that that is the case at most of the UCs. It's not uncommon at public schools not to grant deferrals right, right here in Massachusetts. Um, your alma mater, Shannon, yeah. University of Massachusetts <laughs> Amherst, does not grant deferrals, period. It has nothing to do with COVID. They just don't do them. So, um I think if you're looking for deferral information, you are likely to be looking in vain. But I also feel like the reason you probably want to know is you're concerned about how much more difficult it might be for your child to get in. And all I can say is this is not something you can control. And so I'm not even sure that the information would be particularly helpful. We've written a number of blogs about this. What we are finding is that it it is um, at many schools, they are saying this is not going to impact um, our decisions this year. And honestly, even if it does, there's literally nothing you can do about it. So I would just kind of let that go. Um, 
there is a place that you can go, Big Future, which is the college boards, um, an arm of the college board. They do try to collect all of the reported information that colleges have put out there and provide things like average ACT score, average SAT scores, um, in, you know, how many students applied, how many enrolled. So that can be a good resource. Um, and the common data set can be a good resource yes, as well. Absolutely. And Laura's follow-up question was, as of now, it seems the UC system will not be considering test scores at all. We just talked about that. That's correct. Yes. If a student has a really strong test score, though, is there a clever, for those of you listening on your phone, I'm making air quotes, is there a clever way to share that information within the application? So UCs have said they're not going to look at them, but can you sneak them in there anyway if you want to? Here's what I can tell you. When a school is test blind, you could do your level best to sneak information in and think that you're being clever and um, it's not going to be a factor. So my gut reaction to that is, no, there is not, and I wouldn't suggest it, um, even if I thought there was a way to do it. Um, you know, certainly you could put them in the additional information section. You could weave them into an essay, but it is going to be to the detriment of the student, um, or it could be anyway. I've never seen a student yeah. talk about test scores in an essay before, and I can't imagine a context in which it would be particularly valuable if the sole purpose was to share that they were very strong. Um, yeah. We've said it many times um, for schools that are of the more selective variety where a very high test score is going to impact the, you know, is going to be a significant part of the consideration. Um, it, it, having a great test score doesn't automatically make you someone that they're like, oh, my goodness, you know, we weren't sure about this kid. But now that I can see they have 750, 750, we definitely want them. If they're test optional, they're not considering test scores for anyone the UC system is very upfront and transparent about how they make decisions, and they will not be using test scores this year to make decisions. Um, if a school is test optional and the scores are great, then by all means, go ahead, send the scores, and that will certainly be a positive factor. Um, but if they're test blind, they're not going to be considered. So I would step away from the idea of finding a way to get them in there. I don't think that's going to be helpful at all. And like I said, it could hurt. Yeah, I mean, with the courts being involved and the courts have told the University of California that using test scores would be discriminatory, if you manage to sneak it in, there, there's no way that they are, um, they're, they're going to risk an, another lawsuit just to consider your test scores. You weren't going to get in, ooh, but they snuck these nice test scores in. I don't see that happening. No, that's exactly no. right. It's not happening. So don't do it. Okay. <laughs> Next question comes to us from Lainey. Uh, Lainey says, my ex-husband and I are planning on splitting college costs. Do we both go on the financial aid applications? applications? Probably not. So the main financial aid application, as you might know, is the FAFSA form. The FAFSA form, um, when parents are divorced, they specifically say report the financial information of your custodial parent. How they define custodial, and they, they explain this, is the parent you lived with the majority of the time in the past year. 
that is the only parent's information that they want. They do not want your non-custodial parent. And again, this is just who did you live with more? They don't care what any actual custody agreement says. Um, if you happened to live with each parent exactly equally, they say as like the tiebreaker factor, uh, report the information of the parent who provided more financial support. Um, but that's only in the case of an a tie of living exactly the same amount of time with each parent. So the fact that, oh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, given that there are 365 days in a year, which is not divisible by two, that should never (laughs) happen, right? Right, exactly. Yes, good point. (laughs) So, so yeah, so they're just looking for the information of the custodial parent. If the custodial parent is remarried, they will also ask for the information of the the custodial parent spouse, so your step parent, if there is a step parent in that household, uh, it's essentially the financial information of that entire custodial household. Um, Non-custodial parent is invisible if you are applying to schools that just require the FAFSA form. If you are are applying to any schools that require the CSS profile form, it's an additional financial aid application that uh, about 200 almost entirely private colleges, uh, some of the the more selective kind of big brand name ones require this extra form, the profile. Um, Many schools that require the profile also require non-custodial parent information. Um, So it will come down to what schools your child is applying to. Most schools, the vast majority of schools, it's just the FAFSA, just the custodial parent. Um, But if your child does end up applying to schools that want the profile, that's when the non-custodial parent could enter the picture. The other thing I will say, the because you did mention your splitting college costs, the, we really get into the weeds here, but just so you know, um, the FAFSA form, the only way kind of custodial non-custodial parent enters the picture sometimes on the FAFSA is the the FAFSA does ask the student, did they receive any gifts or have any bills paid on their behalf by anyone other than their custodial parents? Uh, and they even put kind of fine print in like, hey, students, this includes your non-custodial parent in case you were going to Mm -hmm. overlook that. So if non-custodial parent is paying the tuition bill, that shows that amount that he or she pays shows up on a future financial aid application two years in the future. Uh, For financial aid purposes, if you were going to split the costs, it would make the most sense for the custodial parent to pay for the first couple years, the non-custodial parent to pay for the last couple years, that it's for financial aid purposes only. There's a whole lot of reasons why you might not want to do that. Um, You know, the student could drop out of school after the first year and only one parent has paid for anything or tuition increases, tends to increase each year. Now the person who pays on the back end pays more. So there's lots of reasons why you wouldn't want to do that. But for financial aid purposes only, that would be the ideal split. Got it. And I should make note, because I'm sure there's somebody out there listening saying, well, in a leap year, there actually is an even number of days. But the reality is, it's did you spend one night longer with one parent than the other? And if one of you is more, does better, sort of makes more money than the other, you might want to think about being intentional about that one night, right? Being with a parent who earns less. Okay. Um, All right. We are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're just going to go right to answering more of your questions. So don't go away. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. 
When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we are back. It's Shannon. It's me. We're answering your questions. Uh, Shannon, you've got one for me. I sure do. So Margaret asks, my daughter hopes to apply to highly selective schools. Her interests are mainly in the humanities and social sciences, and she has a particular interest in Japanese and in Korean. She has a rigorous curriculum that includes honors French 4 and Japanese 1 this year. She wants to stop taking French after this year, but continue with Japanese. Therefore, she would not take AP French and would have stopped her French study at the end of sophomore year. Will her world language path give admissions officers pause, or will it be considered a strong language curriculum as she'll have one language through level four and another through level three? Okay, so the key piece here is that she plans to apply to highly selective schools. When I hear highly selective, I think of schools with acceptance rates in the single digits. I think Ivy League, I think Stanford, I think MIT, places like that. So the question of whether or not this will be considered a strong language curriculum or whether or not the path will give admissions officers pause, my answer is that it's somewhere in between. My advice when you're applying to the most selective schools in the country is that you want to go to the highest level available in all five major subjects, math, science, English, history, and foreign language. I love that your daughter has specific interests in Japanese and Korean. I think you made note um, in the, the bigger question that she was not thinking of majoring in those areas, but they are a significant interest. And she there will be things in the application that will highlight those interests. That's all great. I totally understand why she's added Japanese. If she truly wants to be the most competitive she would be, my advice would be to stick with the French and go to the AP level in addition to having added the Japanese. Does she have to stick with the French? No, of course not. But it is always most impressive when a student or most expected for a student to go to the highest level available in all five major subject areas. And so if we strictly look at it purely from the perspective of what's going to give you your best shot at getting in to have gone to that highest level in French 
while simultaneously adding Japanese, which is not an easy language to learn, very different from something like French, which is a romance language, um, that is going to be more impressive. And so what I would say is that by dropping French, she's missing an opportunity to make herself just a little bit more impressive. Um, is it ultimately, is she not going to get in because she drops French? Absolutely not. It never comes down to the choice of one class or another. Um, but I think it's more, so from my perspective, it's more of a missed opportunity than that it would give anyone pause or be considered less than. It's just, she's missing an opportunity to stand out a little bit more. That's and I suppose it. there's just the opportunity cost there. If she continues with French, there's something else she can't take. So she has to weigh those options, right? Absolutely, potentially. I, I will tell you, it's not uncommon to see a student um, do two foreign languages in addition to the other four core math, science, English, and history, um, and go to all of them in the highest level. It's not common, but it's not right. unique either. And that's right. what we that's what we mean when we talk about what you're really up against when you're applying to these schools where there are acceptance rates in the single digits. Right. It's tough. Yeah. Um, all right, Shannon, I've got one more finance question for you. And yes. for whatever reason, my screen doesn't want to scroll. Here we go. <laughs> if you have, this actually came, we did a, um, an open to the public session uh, on Monday, actually, Stacy mm-hmm. McFeeders and I, another member of our team, did a presentation on early strategies for basically getting more money. And um, this question came up and we didn't have a chance to answer it. So I said I would do it on the show. If you have multiple 529 accounts for your multiple children, do you need to report all 529 account assets on the FAFSA for your oldest child, the first one going through the process, or only the account for this child? Good question. Excellent question. And the answer is yes, you need to report all of the 529 accounts for all of your children on you know your initial FAFSA for your oldest child. You're not just reporting that child's 529. Um, the, the financial aid process considers 529s to be an asset of the parent, not assets of the individual children who are the beneficiary of those accounts. Um, they, they don't, the process does not draw particular distinctions that you might draw in your mind in that I've got this money in my checking account for this purpose and in my savings account for this purpose and I've got these stocks for something else and this is my vacation fund and this is my college fund for one kid and this is my college fund for another child. There's lots of great reasons to have those distinctions in your mind. For financial aid purposes, they are all assets of the parent. They are all looked at exactly the same. The only distinction between assets that are really drawn in the financial aid process um, that are excluded from the financial aid process are your equity in your primary residence and your retirement account. So they're off the table uh, at most college, at most colleges, but every other kind of asset that a parent owns and the parents do generally own the 529s just because you want to use some of the money for one child and some of the other money for another child. Um, the financial aid offices do not care about that. Um, They know, in fact, that you can transfer money between 529s within the family. So, you know, I've certainly heard this rumor, oh, I should put all of my 529 money in the youngest child's 529. Mm -hmm. So then I won't have to report it when the older child is applying. Not true. Doesn't work. Uh, the, the, the feds and the financial aid offices has caught on to that possibility. They know you can do that. That's why they make you report 
all of it. So it does all have to be reported as a parent asset. That is actually kind of a good thing um, because student assets are looked at much more harshly on the financial aid application uh, through, through the financial aid formula. They have a much higher assessment rate. So we don't actually want those 529s uh, to be considered belonging to the child, they would be hit more harshly. We want to look at them as parent assets. That how, that's how you are supposed to report them, but that also means you have to report all of them for all of your kids. And really quickly, can you remind us, what? how do they assess the parent asset? Because we yes. know that income is the biggest, but what yes. about the parent assets? It is a very gentle assessment. Um, it can range anywhere from zero to 6%. So essentially, worst case scenario, if you have $10,000 in 529s for your kids, it's costing you $600 of financial aid. And that's in the very worst case scenario. It's usually not that much. Um, so parental assets are assessed very gently. So I really, in most cases, wouldn't worry about the effect that's having on financial aid. It is minimal. It is really your income that is driving the formula. When uh, when families don't qualify for financial aid, it is almost always because of their income, not because of their savings. It's always better to save um, than to not save in, in hopes of getting more financial aid. The amount that you save helps you much, much more than the small loss of financial aid hurts you. Right. If you were looking for a, ooh, how can I beat the rap strategy? I don't recommend this, but maybe you <laughs> wanted two years before your child is going to be entering college as a freshman. You could take a very low-paying job, and that would at least change your income. But sure <laughs> don't think that's a great idea. In general. Right. Wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't help you pay for college. No, so, it wouldn't. Yeah. It, would. always, it always hurts more than, uh, more than, than it, it helps. helps. Yeah. Exactly. And, uh, but I do like that message that saving is not a penalty. Saving is a, pos- is a positive. Okay. Absolutely. Yes, so we got another question um, about test scores, testing very much on the mind these days. Yes. Um, I listened to an episode of your podcast in which you discussed how to think about whether a student has any chance for an Ivy League caliber school. And I have two follow-up questions about SAT or ACT scores. One, does above the 25th percentile mean for the composite and also for the subsection scores? Uh, how much will it hurt a student's candidacy if the composite and verbal scores are in the top 25, uh, 25th percentile while the math subsection scores are not? Uh, and this is for a student with interest in the humanities. Sure. Um, So it's the composite score that is going to be the most impactful. When the subsection score is lower, um, it could be a negative if the student, or not a negative, but not a positive, I guess would be a better way to position it because they're looking looking for reasons to admit. Um, So if you are applying to STEM programs, one of the things that admissions officer is going to look a little bit more closely at is the student's performance in math and science, um, whether the courses they took and the grades they earned, but also the test scores they have in those areas. And if, in general, those are lower areas of testing, that could be a negative. However, if your overall, and when we talk about composite scores, we're talking about the ACT, if your overall ACT composite score is in range for an Ivy, then there's no way that subsection is all that low. Because right. you can't get your su- your composite score where it needs to be if the subsection is lower. And I, I, I'm not quite sure about the 25th percentile that you're referencing. So um, most schools do not publish 
the individual subsection score averages. So I'm not entirely clear on what you're referencing there, but if you just, if you're meaning that their scores are in that top percentile, because when you get a score report, they will also tell you, you know, Hey, you scored better than 75% of the students out there. Um, The 75th percentile is not great. Most of the schools who are looking at IVs um, and have the test scores that they need to be competitive are typically scoring in much higher percentiles. But here's the rub. No one's looking at the percentiles when they look at the scores. They're looking at the scores themselves. So never once in my entire career at Penn did I ever say, well, a student has a 780 on their chemistry subject test, but that's only 75th percentile. I never knew the percentile. I didn't care about the percentile. I cared about the score. So that's how that piece works. Right. Uh, And the next question was, is there a score at which you advise a student to stop testing? Um, For example, a 35 on the ACT or a 1500 on the SAT. Will a student with a 1500 ever be relegated to the no pile because of that score? Um, And now that we've thought about this from the viewpoint of a non-hooked applicant, how much do the answers change for a legacy student? Okay, so the answers don't change for a legacy student. Um, legacy students are, in my experience and in the what I've seen happen since I joined College Coach, are as qualified as anybody else who's in the applicant pool. And at the schools that consider legacy, it's an extra small tip, but they need to be as strong. So no difference between a legacy and a, an applicant who doesn't have that legacy um, piece. So um, I would say that the bare minimum for an ACT score to be in the competitive range would be a 34. 35 is certainly better. I don't think there is an appreciable difference between a 35 and a 36. And I think there are a lot of things that students could be putting their time towards that would be a way better use of their time than getting a 35 and then going back and testing again to try and get the 36. That said, when I have a student who's super eager to do something like that, my question is always, will you feel like you have left something on the table if you go in with a 35 and you you wanted to spend a Saturday taking the test one more time, then go for it. I certainly wouldn't tell a student, no, don't do that. But I also would never suggest that a student who has a 35 retest because I don't see the point in it. There is not an appreciable difference between the two. And particularly given where we are in the world right now, I absolutely would not, would not suggest it. I just don't think it's worth it. Um, In terms of 1500 on the SAT, that's a tricky question because that could mean that you got an, 800 and a 700. And a 700 typically is not going to be where I would want it to be. So my advice here is that the minimum be a 750 across the board. 750 on the verbal section, 750 on the math section uh, for subject tests, 750 minimum and above. Um, So that 1500 could be great because it could be a 750, 750. Or it could be less great, as I mentioned, because it could be an 800 and a 700. Um, So really, you want those to be in general range, and I would be shooting for a minimum of a 750 um, in each of those. And just to emphasize again, 
person asked about Ivy League schools, the most highly selective schools, yeah. at, at the vast, vast majority of schools, a 1500 on the SATs would blow the admissions officers out of the water, right? It's just this small subset of schools where, where that 700 could potentially be an issue. Right, exactly. So yeah. 700 is generally not an issue at, mo- at many schools, yes. right? So those that are more selective... Um, And again, is it an issue? Do you not get in because of a 700? No, because here is the rub. And no student would ever be put in the no pile because of a test score. In general, that 1500 is probably strong. But once it's like, once you've determined that the scores are where they need to be, literally the scores become utterly irrelevant. They are not part of the conversation. I would never say in committee, oh, well, we really need to take this kid, though, because he has an 800 and a 700, or we can't take this kid because he got a 700 in the verbal. The reasons that students are making it into the class is because everything else is incredibly strong. Maybe they made that choice to stick with French and added Japanese. Um, Plus, they have a distinguishing excellence, which we've talked about a lot on this show. So I realize that testing is an easy thing to point to. It's so quantifiable. It doesn't change from school to school. The way they um, calculate the test score is not different as the way schools calculate GPAs can be different. I beg of you, I implore you (laughs) to let it go. The reality is that you are not getting in because of a test score at the most selective level. And you are not going to not get in because of a test score. Because when the test scores are not great, generally speaking, the rest of the application is could be great and fine, but isn't standing out anyway. Um, I would say that this year with most of those schools as test optional schools, it is sort of an interesting thing because every once in a while you do have a student who really has excelled and just can't seem to crack the standardized testing nut, but we're not typically talking like an 800 and a 700 here, or we're really talking usually more like their testing is in the 600s, so it's really off the mark of where most uh-huh. um, of the competitive students are going to be. But even then, and so now what they get is the benefit of those scores won't be considered right. at all, so it, all the focus can be on the great stuff. But even when scores are being considered, nobody literally gets put in the no pile because of their test scores. They read every single file. I read a file whether the scores were 300s, which I did see, or they were 800s. And while it is highly unlikely that the student with the 300 level scores was getting in, it was also not a foregone conclusion that if you had 800s, you were getting in. We turned away a lot of students with spectacular test scores because it's not about the test scores. So, you know, it's tough and I get it. Unless you've been in the room, it's really hard. Um, to kind of fully appreciate the role that the scores play, but that is the reality. Um, Okay. Well, I think that wraps it up. I think we're at the end of our time. Uh, Thank you all for being here. I'm back next week um, and we are talking. What are we talking about next week? Um, (laughs) We're talking about what not to do. So admissions bloopers, early results, what these might look like and how to handle them, and then getting ready to pay your student loans back. And don't forget, we are here every week on Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. 
Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.